Happy Sunday. It's good to see you. I'd love to sing the gospel with you. It's a very sweet thing for us to do that. It's an opportunity that we get that the universal church in entirety doesn't get. We get an opportunity to, um, to worship freely. What a grace. I'm going to pray, and I'll invite you to pray with me before we open up the book. <clears throat> You're so good and faithful. You're perfect in all your ways. You make no mistakes. There's no one like you. You have revealed your hidden face in Christ, shown us indeed your glory through the cross and giving us, given us hope indeed through the resurrection. Now we look forward to the second coming. Thank you that we are your people, the redeemed people who will one day be ultimately redeemed. Oh God, I pray that as we open up your word that you would speak and that you would feed your people so they would have strength and faith and endure until the end of time. Thank you that we're made for something so much more than this world has to offer. It is in, it's coming in Christ and in glory, and we look forward to that. Father, I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, confession, uh, one of the things that I like to do while I'm in the car, um, spending time and having uh, time to kill, um, is catch up with old friends. I, I, I know we're a hands-free state, so I use speakerphone for those of you who are, I know you look for my seatbelt too. I put that on too. Anyways, I like, to spend, I like to spend time with friends in the car talking and catching up. This week, I was on my way up to an appointment in Duluth, and I had some time on my hands to kill, so I called one of my old buddies from college who recently became a Christian. He and his family over the past year or so have been attending a local church out in Ohio. Uh, funny enough, I actually know the, the, the lead pastor. He was a friend of mine who went to seminary with me. And uh, I had some time to ask my friend about his life and faith, what it's been like for him as a newfound Christian. And my friend went on to say a lot of great and beautiful things. He talked to me about what it means to be filled by God and loved by God. He talked to me about what it means to have inward peace. He told me what it means uh, to feel inwardly and truly blessed for the very first time. He said, you know, James, I thought I was a Christian my whole life, um, but come to find out I, I wasn't. It wasn't until this past February where my wife was gone away on a trip. I was home alone at the house, and I for real surrendered my life to Christ. I was alone. I gave my life to him. And he really started to change me. And I said, man, that's amazing. I, you know, I really do see a, a change in you, bro. And he said, thank you. And then he went on to say something I didn't expect him to say, something surprising, but also something extremely refreshing. He said, James, you know, if I'm honest, I just want to let you know that this whole following Jesus thing is a lot harder than I ever imagined. And I said, man, could you tell me about that? And he said, sure. And he told me in detail what some of those things have been like for him. I'm not going to explain those to you for sake of confidentiality, but he told me that in his life he had been facing some potential face hindrances. Some things have come into his life that have sought to get in his way of believing. Things have threatened his faith over the past year or so, he's faced some potential roadblocks. 
And uh, the reason why um, I say that this was refreshing for me to hear is not because I take joy in my friend's sufferings, trials, or hardships, but rather because the Bible says that one of the marks of true, authentic Christianity is indeed suffering. In other words, one of the ways that you can tell if a person is truly an authentic Christian is not only through the test of time, but also through the test of trials and or suffering. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, plainly, if you remember, in this world, his disciples, you will indeed have suffering. In other words, for the one who follows Jesus and has faith in him, Suffering is not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. And it's essential that we as Christians remember this because when it comes, if we are not ready, it has the potential to ruin us. This morning, I want to talk to you about the importance of embracing the whole gospel. And when I say whole gospel, I'm including suffering. And in this, what I want to do is remind us of the grace and promises of God that we get in it because of Christ. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open to Exodus chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 23 this morning. For those of you who are following along, I've titled the sermon, Embracing the Whole Gospel. From this text, I'd like to show us three things. Number one, how to interpret our suffering. Number two, I want to remind us how we are called by Jesus and his grace to voice our doubts and pains. And number three, how through it all, our call is to remember our faithful Savior. Interpret our, interpreting our suffering, voicing our doubts and pains, and remembering our Savior. We're going to begin our time by reading the whole text up front. It's a long text, but it's the most important part of the sermon. I'll invite you to follow along. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I shall obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and the foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose upon them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to their lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw for yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be redu reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. 
The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task, each day, as when there was straw. And the foreman of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had sent over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw when they were in tr- uh, that they were in trouble. I'm sorry. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily tasks each day. They met with Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. You have not delivered your people at all. My brothers and sisters, this indeed is the word of God. We're super thankful for it. Right now we're moving to point number one. I'd like to show you how to interpret our suffering. We've now come to the point of Exodus, uh, where the Egypt narrative really picks up. You uh, might remember from last week how after coming off the mountain with God, Moses left Midian and entered into Egypt with his family and his brother Aaron. And uh, Moses did this to, um, by faith, proclaim the name of God to the Israelites in their slavery. And uh, if you remember last week, it actually ended off pretty well. If you recall, after Moses went and proclaimed to the people the name of God and all the words that he spoke to them, God, in the very last verse of the last chapter, verse 30, produced these results. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. It was an amazing end to the previous chapter. However, this week, what I want for us to see and realize in our text is how things have dramatically changed. Moses, after spending some time with the people of God, now here in our text, approaches Pharaoh. He says some words. He makes some requests. And uh, Pharaoh here not only fails to listen to Moses, but goes on to do the very opposite thing in which he asks for. He not only keeps the people but then increases their work and inflicts upon them more suffering. Back in this time, um, it took both mud and straw to form bricks. Straw was the binding agent that made it possible for the mud to shape and form, almost like rebar in modern-day concrete. Um, Pharaoh said, in light of Moses' request, not only am I going to take away straw from your people to make bricks, but now... As even heavier demand, I'm going to demand for the same level of production to be met. 
Naturally, the Israelites could not keep up with this demand. And so in verses 14 and 16, what we have when they fail to produce is the, 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 the slave masters beating the people. Slavery is, is really, really cruel and inhumane. As we read this story, what I want for us to realize here is that just one chapter ago, things were different. When Israel heard God's plan and promises over their life to bring them out of Egypt, they had faith and they believed. They were really encouraged. In chapter 3, verse 16, God said through Moses to the people, I'm going to give you favor. I'm going to deliver you. One day you're going to walk away from Egypt um, uh, uh, just, I guess, victoriously and uh, prosperous. The Israelites received this word immediately with joy. And almost immediately after, the very next chapter, here we are. And what they get in the first chapter in their journey to follow the Lord is this. Suffering. Look at what happens in their heads and hearts when these people who are called to faith encounter suffering. Then they met with Moses and Aaron, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge you because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hands to what? To kill us. In other words, Israel's hope in God for deliverance has now changed the very next chapter after hearing the hope of deliverance. They think they're going to die now. What has happened here is that suffering has clouded their ability to hope in God and his promises. Further, said more theologically, they think that Pharaoh and his workers have the power and ability to trump the Lord's sovereignty. And look at Moses, what he says in verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done this evil to the people? Why'd you ever send me? For since I came Pharaoh to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. What is happening here to Moses in light of his, might I remind you, real attempt to follow God? Can I remind you that Moses is really trying to follow God here? He really did leave Midian, uproot his family, and seek to take them to another country by faith to follow calling. Now, In the face of faithfulness, he encounters this suffering. And the first thing that we see in his reaction is him blaming God. Why have you done this evil, Lord? Why did I ever go here in the first place? What Moses is doing, I want us to see, is with pride and presumption, he is placing his own plans and vision on how his life is supposed to go in Egypt on and over God's, and since it didn't match up, now he's frustrated. If this is not the reliability of the scriptures for us, I don't know what is. The reason why I stopped to show you this point here is because what I want us to realize about ourselves is this is the way that we are tempted uh, by the evil one when we who have been called by faith honestly and earnestly seek to obey God, but in the pathway of obedience, face suffering. Moses thought 
that since he was obeying God, things would go well for him. That sounds great, doesn't it? That's what we all want. But the problem here, here's the problem. It actually started from the beginning. The problem in light of Israel and Moses' unmet expectations that also produce frustration for hope and deliverance is that they, what I want us to see is, have a case of selective hearing. If you remember last week in the text, chapter 3, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, chapter um, 4, verse 30, it says, when Moses visited the people, him and Aaron told the people everything that the Lord God said to them, which would have included chapter 3, verse 19, where God said this, but know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Chapter 4, verse 21, for I will harden Pharaoh's heart. What did the people of Israel think about this when they heard these words? The answer, they didn't think about it. From the response here, we see that when it comes to the gospel, they only heard the good and encouraging news. Um, same thing for Moses and Aaron here, most likely due to the fact that their first encounter on their mission was super successful. Remember, act of faith number one, proclaim the Lord's name and the people right away respond and believe. They think that this whole faith thing, as they call a nation of, of people out of a nation by faith, is going to be a walk in the park. But now, in light of what they have assumed about their gospel calling on their lives, they get this. My brothers and sisters, what I want to remind us of this morning is that there is a real danger in selective hearing when it comes to the Christian faith. In other words, not embracing the whole gospel when it comes to following the Lord Jesus Christ. We as Christians indeed embrace the love the mercy, the gentleness, the kindness, the patience, the protection, and the hope of deliverance for us that we get through Christ. We love these things. God indeed is hopeful. We as his people indeed get hope. But we must not forget the Savior in whom we follow. What was the product and end result of his earthly life? Crucifixion. Jesus said, no servant is greater than his master. If anyone would follow me, let him take up his cross. In this world, you will have suffering. These are the words of Jesus. In other words, suffering and hardship are a part of the game. And you want to know what happens when we choose selective hearing concerning the Christian faith, when it comes to suffering, we're tempted to give up, throw in the towel, and or fade away. In Matthew chapter 13, you might remember Jesus taught the parable of the seed. The sower sowing the seed. The seed is the word. The soil is the heart. Jesus, he talked about the type of person who receives the seed with great joy, but since the seed didn't take any root, 
It only ends up lasting for a short time, for when trial, tribulation, or persecution comes on the account of the word, they indeed fall away. 1 Thessalonians, uh, in that book, the Apostle Paul says there's actually two things that mark genuine faith, genuine conversion. Number one is belief in God's word for what it is and what it says, and number two, that one's reception of that word would endure through the testing and trials. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trials when they come upon you as to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Uh, this is actually the, the verse that my, my wife quoted to me uh, this week while we were at the kitchen sink. Um, this week, Tuesday specifically, was really hard. Um, the kids were um, crazy. Our house was a mess. Lizzie wasn't feeling good. I was late for an appointment for work. And uh, there I found, as I was away, my way out the door, my little one-year-old daughter, Noelle, in her cute way, munching on a dishwasher pod that you pop in the thing. <laughs> she's just munching. Uh, no worries. She's here. She's healthy. She's safe, okay? Um, but what drew me to her to find her was a poopy diaper, Okay? So I'm lured by the smell of poop because it's my uh, turn to change the diaper. And so I get over to the sink and my wife is watching me. She knows that Noel has a poopy diaper. And Lizzie says to me, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. <laughs> Trying to lighten the mood a little bit for you. But here's why I tell you this story. Because suffering comes in all different size, shapes, and forms. So um, whether it be big suffering or small suffering, we're all suffering. Why? Because we're in a broken world. And the fall has, has ruined the beauty and perfection of God's creation and the mundane and the normal life with a broken family and a broken work and a broken calling has the real ability to weary the soul. I know some of you know what that means. I do too. And some of you also know what big suffering looks like. Indeed, some of you have that right now. Do you want to know what the Bible compares this testing of faith through trials to? It compares it to um, a vessel of gold being refined by fire only to come out on the other side as beautiful. First Peter chapter 1, verse 7, these things have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. What is God up to in your life, in the mundane suffering, in the toil and hardship of your soul because of this fallen world? He is making you more precious than gold. The gospel's found in his sovereignty. He controls everything. There's not anything that he lets happen to you that he doesn't have a good intention with. This old Puritan preacher named Thomas Watson once said this, no vessel can be made of gold without fire. 
So it is unlikely that we can be made glorious unless we are melted and refined in the furnace of affliction. Remember what Job said in the 23rd chapter after he lost his children and his farm and his animals and his health and all his wealth? His friend came to him and said, tell me about your suffering. And, um, and Job said, um, he said, after I've been tested for a while, I shall come forth as gold. Job believed in the goodness of God through his suffering. God is good, thus my suffering must be good because my God is in ultimate control. My brothers and sisters, how could we not have more confidence than Job after seeing our God in flesh crucified on a tree for our sin? God is for you, man. He's proven it right there in the tree. He didn't keep away from suffering. He entered into suffering fully and on the cross. That's the beauty of it. He felt the entire weight. Indeed, he took upon the entire weight of the curse on himself to empathize with you in weakness and show you compassion and sympathy. This is the gospel. The gospel doesn't say for Christians that our God removes suffering from our life. It says that he's all-powerful and sovereign. Indeed, that he uses it. To ready us for glory, which is our final home. Can I remind you that you're not living here permanently? This is not your home. If you're in Christ, you're waiting for something much greater that's coming much later. This is how we last the test of time. We look forward to the hope that's going to be revealed at the glory of Christ when he comes to make all things new. Your suffering's temporary, and it's worth it. It's working in you something good. God is using it to refine you so you can become more precious than gold. He who began a good work in you will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. He who began the work, he'll complete it. If you're suffering, big or small, I want to remind you that redemption is coming. Your home is coming. Take heart. Christ is on his way. Amen. That was point number one. I'd like to now move to point number two. And I'd like to show you how we can voice our doubts and pains. Well, um, as we look at the story here, I want to continue to focus on Moses' words to God in relation to his life and faith and circumstance at the end of the text. If you look there in, in verse 22, he asked this question of doubt to God. Lord, why have you done this, is what he says. Side note, God, God didn't do this. Pharaoh did this, but it's still a question of doubt. That's question one. Question two, why'd you send me? In other words, I shouldn't have came. Question number three, which is a final comment of complaint, God, you have not delivered at all. I mentioned to you in the previous point that the main dilemma behind Moses' words here was um, that he had a case of selective hearing. Thus, he had a fallen interpretation of what is true of God in his life. And although this be true, what I also want to show you here is that Moses is actually still doing, generally speaking, something right. What is he doing? He's turning to God, and he's being honest before him. 
Moses is saying, God, I struggle with doubt. God, I'm skeptical towards you and my life plan. Here's my complaints. I'm uncertain. My heart is tempted to not give you it because of what you allowed to happen. And so I guess the question for us that we're all probably anticipating now at this point of the text is what is God going to do? We're going to get to that in a second, but before we do, I want to talk about this. Did you know that the way that Moses is praying here is indeed in some sort of way, the same way that King David, who was the man who was known to be after God's own heart, how he prayed in the Psalms. This is how the man who was known to be after God's own very heart prayed to God. Psalm chapter 10, verse 1. O Lord, why do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The thought behind the question, God, it seems like you're nowhere to be found in my hardship. Why are you distancing yourself from me? Psalm 42, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? I go on mourning because of the impression of my enemy. The thought behind that confession and prayer, God, it seems like you don't remember your people when it's most important. You leave them alone to weep and care for themselves. Can we just be humans and draw near to this text for a second? Say how beautiful this is. Psalm 73, for I was envious of, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Confession, when life gets hard because faithfulness wasn't producing, I truly considered the way of evil because it seemed better. If you feel that, you're not alone. Godly men actually feel that. But these, by the way, are all prayers to God. Moses here, although he is a fallen man, is doing something right, and what he's doing is turning to God and voicing his doubt and pain. I just want to appreciate how beautiful this picture is. How then, in response, how, how gracious God must be to let Moses, a, a fallen, sinful, weak, limited in his understanding man, to come and talk to him like this. This is huge. You know what's even bigger? How God then responds in the very next chapter. Instead of hearing all his doubts and complaints and skepticisms in light of his honesty, because Moses belongs to God, throughout the whole very next chapter, God says over and over again, don't fear my people, don't fear my man, don't be dismayed, I'm going to rescue you, I indeed am your God. I heard you. I see you. Now watch me work. I'm the faithful one. What you need to know about God, even when you struggle to believe and your life is caught in the suck, is that God is so gracious and compassionate to his children that he never grows impatient or angry as we struggle along the way. Hear that? If your life is hidden in Christ, God is never growing in anger and or impatience with you as you struggle and suffering along the way. But in Jesus Christ, he's eager to show mercy. So you can go to God and tell him that you're feeling sinful. You can go to God that you're, and tell him that you don't feel like you can perform well enough for him. 
you can go to God and tell him that you really are struggling to believe in his hope and promises for your life, you can do that. Actually, that's a gospel invitation. He knows it already, might I remind you. He wants to hear you say it. He's your father. You're his child. And when the child of a father opens up the heart, he's moved towards affection and compassion. I love when my children tell me their struggles. I want to hear their heart in pain. How much more does our gracious father in heaven want to hear our skepticisms and or doubts? This is what the Lord Jesus Christ delights in most. The prayers of his people. Psalm 15, verse 8, the sacrifice of the wicked is detestable to God, but the prayers of his upright are his delight. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Okay, I was really afraid. I thought my enemies could take my life. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him, saved him out of all of his troubles. The Bible displays real people who lived in the same world that you and I are living in, this, this fallen world. We are to draw near to the text to relate to Moses here. What's my encouragement to you in this? Voice your doubts and pains. Tell God that it hurts. Tell him that you need him to be compassionate and slow to anger with you, and he will draw near to comfort your soul. When I said God never grows angry and or impatient with you as you struggle in your suffering, how can I say that so confidently? I say that confidently as I remind us all of the, the perfection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his sinless life and his perfect suffering to the point of death on the cross. His perfect suffering covers you in your imperfect suffering. Your perfect Savior covers you in your imperfect faith. That's how gracious God is and longs to be with you. You don't have to assess your status before God on your own merit or performance. Get rid of that. It's not the gospel. It'll only condemn you. Satan from the pit wants you to believe in this, that God in heaven is waving his finger at you and saying you're not doing enough in suffering. But the gospel is if you are his child, his love and mercy covers you always. Jesus is enough for you. That's why you have the Savior. In tragedy or triumph, our only boast is Christ. We have um, our mission statement. If you're new to our church, this is our mission. This is why we exist. We're seeking to uh, create a place for the wounded and weary to rest and be cared for by Christ and his people. Um, in that, you might recognize the corporate aspect of it. And here's why we're embracing the corporate aspect of it. Because your salvation is not meant for you and God alone. But it's you, God, and his people. And in our suffering, we tend to go inward. We tend to hide and distance ourselves from God. But God has not only given us Christ, but he's given to us Christ's bride. And so you need the people who are sitting next to you. God has called his people, his bride, to comfort and know you. What if the people next to you weren't strangers? What if the people next to you weren't the people that you only see once a week on Sunday morning? 
But what if the people next to you were your brothers and sisters and intimate friends? And they know you in such a way that when you come here on Sunday morning and you lift holy hands together, you two together can lift holy hands in your suffering and let God be faithful to pour his spirit upon you. Did you know that's what makes corporate worship so sweet? Intimate knowledge of each other and of our Lord? You're meant to be known. And if you take the risk of being known and come to our church to voice a doubt or skepticism, what you'll find out is everyone is feeling that in one shape, form, or another. Everyone here is suffering. Hey, I'm the pastor. I'm just telling you as it is. So many people here in this room this morning are suffering. And if you know them through Bible study and or community group or or just spending time at the park or home, you get to know that and you come here and worship, this is the way that God has designed to build it up and lift your faith. What if we, as a church, in community group and or Bible study or any church context, when someone comes and asks a really hard skeptical question of doubt or shame or guilt or whatever it is, name it. What if we, instead of rushing to solve the problem or provide to them an answer, actually sat in the awkward silence to attempt to be compassionate and empathetic and understand the person and the story that is behind the question? What if we did that instead and said, welcome, you're welcome here to walk with Jesus as we walk with Jesus and as he teaches us over a long period of time because we're confessing that answers don't necessarily solve the problem. <laughs> this is life. It's, not, it's pretty much not all black and white. It's pretty much all gray and nuance. So what if we just sat in that to know each other and understand our stories, showed compassion, and in gospel timing, sought to convey truth and embody truth so those people could be one. We're all figuring this out. Nobody has arrived. I haven't arrived. I'm still figuring it out. I'm a, process. I'm a work in process. We're all works in process. If we just humble ourselves, we're able to see people through a gospel lens and show mercy as they struggle with doubt, pain, and hard questions. Zach Eswine, he's our men's retreat speaker this, this, this year. I think he's going to do an outstanding job. He said this. What would it look like or be like if a church was a community in which our real questions, our honest and even miserable doubts, our anxieties and depression, even the anxieties and sorrows that we don't even understand and can't explain were welcomed? And in community, we could travel with Jesus and each other just like the earliest Christians did. And so on his website, he went on to ask a couple questions. I thought they're pretty cool. Here's some of the questions that him and his organization try to answer. Is it okay to feel happy when the one who hurts you gets hurt? Can I continue to attend worship if I'm doubting God? Why does marriage look easy for everyone except us? Is the Apostle Paul a jerk? That last one's probably the best. The point that I'm trying to make through Moses' prayer and confession here is that God, the good news of the gospel, that God gives us space to come to us honestly or come to him honestly. Man, we're going to have the men's retreat soon. 
We're not going to ask you to cry or share your heart. I know that's uncomfortable. But just take a risk. Take a risk. Come and find some brothers and some men who are trying their best to follow Jesus. And there we're going to find grace. Amen? That was point number two. I'd like to finish now. Point number three, which is remembering our Savior. I I didn't point this out to you yet, um, but in the beginning of the story, uh, Moses in many ways is unfaithful to God. Here's just a few. Um, He didn't bring the elders with him to Pharaoh as God told him to do last week. In his approaching Pharaoh and speaking to him, he added words and said those words to Pharaoh in which God didn't tell him to speak at all. And uh, in this story, we have seen his doubt and his sin in placing the blame blame game on God. The good news that I want to share with you as we close here is that God, despite all this to Moses and his people, still saves. In fact, all throughout chapters 6 and 7, Moses and the people continue to doubt God and continue to not believe, and God in their half, but continues to act and give grace to the least deserving because of his own promises. That's why God is faithful to Moses and his people, because he's made a promise. I read this quote by C.S. Lewis this week. C.S. Lewis said this, God who foresaw our tribulation has specifically armed us to go through it, not without pain, but without stain. I want you to get that for a second. God allows you to suffer and promises that you will get through suffering, although you sin and struggle, without stain. Like your sin has no more power over you to stain you and or corrupt you. Sin has lost its power through the death and resurrection of Christ. Now the promise is as you go through it, Christ's righteousness covers you. And as you come out of it, you look more like glory. As you are tempted to forsake God in hard times and suffering, draw away from him and his bride and his church and his people, indeed, maybe even yourself. God, because of Jesus Christ, because God the Father forsook his son on the cross, promises that he will never forsake you. He's never leaving you. He's never forsaking you. He will be with you to the ends of the ages. You get assurance and promise from God through Jesus Christ. God, the sovereign king, is committed to your holiness. I'll close with this. Um, This week, uh, we were at my house. We knocked down some trees and pulled out some bushes. And uh, I was trying to do that work myself. That's sanctifying alone. And there was a, a bush that had some remnants of twigs sprouting up from the ground. And I thought to myself, well, that'll be easy. I don't even need a tool to pull out those things. And so I went over to this one twig that was remnant of the bush, uh, still sprouted up. And I went to pull it out, thought it was going to be easy. I almost pulled out my back because that thing was really, really rooted into the ground. Now, whoa, that little tiny, weak twig is freaking strong, man. And so I stayed prideful, and I didn't get a tool, and I kept pulling. I snapped it out at the, at the top. Just the top broke off, and it remained rooted in the ground. Jesus said, in this world, you will have suffering. But take heart. I have overcome the world. If you want to be rooted in the gospel, and in, indeed in Jesus Christ, you must know 
that suffering, if it's not here, is coming. But if you embrace the hope and promises of the resurrection and that second coming, you indeed will be rooted in your faith and unmovable when it comes. If you're suffering and you haven't been doing it well, I will remind you, God wants to be gracious to you. All of your sin is forgiven if you're in Jesus Christ. But I pray that our church would be rooted in the gospel so that when suffering comes, we would hold on by and through God's grace. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that no servant is greater than its master. Thank you for this invitation to pick up our cross and follow you. God, I pray that you would teach us to give grace and mercy to ourselves as you indeed give us grace and mercy. Would you help us to deal mercifully with ourselves and give ourselves grace as you do through Christ so we wouldn't be the agents of condemnation for our own faith? Thank you that you didn't stay away from suffering, but you took upon yourself so you might uh, make redemption possible. We're in the story. We're waiting for the second coming. And we lock arms with the universal church and say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.